0: Hi everyone, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Expert Answers from Inside Scientific. Inside Scientific is the online environment for life science webinars, virtual events, interviews, and educational content that helps you do your best work. Today, we are joined by Harm Nott, Lou DeLacy, and Jeffrey Osborne. Harm is CTO of TSC Systems, a company which provides a range of products relating to animal metabolism, physiology, behavior, and inhalation. Lou is a professor of Molecular and Integrative Physiology at the University of Michigan. Jeffrey is a professor and associate chair in the Department of Biology at the University of Kentucky. They are here to discuss new capabilities in wireless physiological monitoring enabled by the stellar telemetry system. Let's jump in.
1: audience members is, is, uh, would like you to comment further on the surgical approach that you covered in your presentation. And basically, the question is, is do you see this as an absolute requirement? And, and in particular, what makes that surgical approach particularly advantageous in the Vervet Monkey, that, in the model that you're doing?
2: Yeah, I, you know, I, I, it's it's a very good question. I have I have not yet used an abdominal approach to insert these catheters. The the non-human primate is is quite different from you know rodent models, rats and mice, and and other other species, as they're they're significantly more susceptible to post-surgical trauma and post-surgical infection. The attending veterinarian from Ross that I work very closely with in this colony, she and I have utilized this retroperitoneal approach, first of all, because it's very quick and easy to get to the abdominal aorta. It doesn't invade the peritoneum, so we don't have to worry about peritonitis or the obtaining abdominal peritoneal type infections. And it exposes the aorta very simply, and by putting the transmitter, the stellar transmitter, is securing it between the muscle layers of the strap muscles of the back. And we can secure the cath- the uh, transmitter, very, very nicely. Such that in the non-human primate, where there's lots of activity and lots of movement, post-operatively and post-surgically, we think it secures the system very, very nicely. So we haven't used an abdominal approach. We've been very, very successful with the retroperitoneal approach, and those are the, the, the primary reasons that we use that approach.
1: Thank you. That, that's great feedback, Jeff. Appreciate that. And I think this would be best to maybe address by uh, both Lou and Harry. Basically, is is it easier to implant a solid-state sensor than a regular fluid-filled catheter? Well,
3: I, I guess the, the key feature here is that we're talking about a solid-state lead rather than a fluid-filled catheter okay Mm -hmm. and so the basic the basic procedure for isolating the vessel and insertion is pretty much the same and i guess the key feature i would speak to for the solid state is that it's more forgiving you know you try and you miss and you get to try again without having compromised the the gel or the fluid in the tip of the catheter, so you can get away with bumping the sides of the wall without distort, dislodging the fluid and that's you know a, a significant advantage. placing the actual insertion is about the same, but you get to try again, and I guess that makes it overall easier.
1: Okay. Well, that's great feedback. Harry, do you have uh, any additional points? Uh, you know, is it easier to implant a solid-state sensor than a regular fluid field? Or, or, you know, what would just be the comparison of the process, maybe, from a surgical perspective?
4: No, I, I, think, I think Lee Lou covered, covered the basis there. I think I, the, the ability to just grab and hold it using different surgical tools. And, and, and like I said, you know, put a loop in it if you have a little bit too much length, for example. Those are the kind of
1: flexibilities in the solid-state okay. uh, lead that you have. Excellent. Okay. Uh, Well, and then, you know what, another one for you, Harry, then. um, Specific question came in from the audience about the capacity of the implant. You know, during the presentation, it's been stressed that data is actually stored on the implant device, and then the scientist's convenience transferred and collected and then moved on for data analysis. Mm -hmm. So what, what are the technical considerations there for memory capacity?
4: Well, principally, the implant comes with, with a, a very large amount of memory. So up to a gigabyte of memory. So it takes quite some time and, and, and measurements to actually reach that. And what we have is we provide tools basically to let you calculate how long you could, could potentially wait until you download the data. Uh, you don't really have to in, in terms of, of course, you know, if you don't download it, may save a little bit of battery life, but principally, it doesn't yet. You don't have to wait three months. <laughs> okay, uh, three months is an example that Jeff took because he's basically these these animals, I guess, far away from his lab in, in on an island. For those people that have the roads basically almost in the same building, you can you can go to like every half hour or every hour or once a day. It's very rare that you would reach the limit of the internal memory given the protocols that we typically use. Perfect.
2: Given that, given, given that Andy, I might chime in here. Even in our three-month recording, we've uh, we've anticipated that we're only going to utilize about forty percent uh, of the total battery life over the three-month recording. We're not even we're not even beginning to compromise the implant, even with this very long-term recording that's going on at a, at a very distant site. And perhaps also it's important to know that, you know, if you,
4: if you reach this at this point, the data are not lost. It will just stop recording until you've basically emptied
3: the memory. Is it fair to to say that you can also modify the, the pattern of data sampling? So, for example, if you wanted to do some high-density sampling for a response to a drug, you can switch it over to high-density sampling, do your injection, and follow it for an hour or two, and then switch it back. Is that is that a capability that um, is programmable? Absolutely.
4: So within that scheduler, basically, you can program sessions in which you specify what leads to look at. For example, you say, okay, pressure, I want to do four times a day, but I want an EKG once a day. And an EKG probably at a, at, a, at a higher data rate, like one kilohertz, for, uh, for example, then you would do pressure where 200 hertz is the same. So that flexibility in programming as well as in data density and in recording frequency is absolutely there. And you can schedule that in advance and then they basically the implant, the microprocessor, will take... We'll take it from there and and just execute. If you want the data in between, you just have to schedule, you know, in in the periods where you're not recording, for example, you can schedule a download. But in that case, you do need to have the, uh, the receiver system in the vicinity.
1: Okay, yeah, and and I, and I maybe actually while we're on the implant or the or the topic of the of the implant features, let's shift gears here to address another question about sterilization. Again, this came in around your lecture slides, Lou, but I think it really applies to everybody. You know, everybody in the group call here. What are the you know what is the experience and how you guys are going about sterilizing and reusing the stellar implant in your applications? And then Harry, maybe you can share some, you know particular technical guidance that that TSC suggests scientists follow.
3: Yeah, I, 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 think, I think Jeff made a, a critical point here. If you're playing with rats, the way I am, there really is a very different issue than in uh, one of these primates. You know, we uh, trade on the robust nature of those implants and we can, you know, gently rinse them, flush them with some enzymatic detergent, uh, disinfect with glutaraldehyde, and basically re-implant. You know, hold my feet to the fire for, is that completely 100% sterile? Probably not. If you want to go 100% sterile, you're going to probably want to go gas sterilization. Uh, I don't have experience at that level because I have the luxury of using the rat. I think Jeff said that he used gas.
2: Was that true, Jeff? Yes. We've not done cold sterilization of the instrument in the non-human primate. We've done everything with gas sterilization and ethylene oxide. You know, it is important for the users to know that autoclaving is not recommended by uh, TSE or Stellar, but gas sterilization we've we have never had a systemic in- infection in any of the animals that we've implanted these, uh,
1: these devices. Very good. Harry, is there anything else that you'd like to add to that? Or if they well, covered guess,
4: it? I guess, I guess. Well, more or less. I, th- I think, uh, you know, the cleaning, I guess the, the, the essence of cleaning, uh, for example, if you reuse it in the, in the different animals, obviously you have to get rid of the protein that may be on the outside. So typically what every lab usually uses is terapazine solutions for that, mm-hmm. and all the rinsing and then basically for the sterilization that's more the cleaning part and then you in order to sterilize you can use a cold sterilization like an overnight soak in two percent glutaraldehyde with a lot of rinsing afterwards with uh, sterile water uh, and before you then uh, basically repackage them for example in in, in sterile packaging in a lavender flowwood for example or the alternative is and, and that's more critical when you go to to uh, non-human primates is to use gas
0: sterilization